quite unusual. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you a good life. Hello and welcome. I am Nicole. And I am Noelle. And we are the Quite Unusual Podcast. If you've been following along for the past five weeks, you know what this episode is going to all be about. That's right. The final conclusion of our Jonestown series, Jones 5. Or I guess Jonestown the final chapter. Whatever you want to call it. It's the last episode. We promise. It's the final Jonestown. <laughs> do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. I like the final Jonestown. I've been singing it all morning. I forgot that you <laughs> you said that. And then when you started, you like took a deep breath. And I was like, oh, no, what's she going to say? <laughs> <laughs> so if you're new around here, or I guess just stopping by to see what's up, please go back and start from part one of Jonestown. Five weeks ago. Five weeks ago. I mean, I guess you could just jump right into the sick, twisted end if you want to, but we suggest you go all the way Mm. from the beginning. Yeah, go all the way, baby. Get some background in there. Um, This episode is actually a little special, too, because we are recording on a Sunday. Very... Very late on a Sunday. Very late on Uh a Sunday, which we never do Uh -uh. because we release on Monday. But there's a reason for that. It's because I got the vaccine on Friday and it kicked my motherfucking ass. Yeah. The COVID vaccine, which not only am I very happy for you, I I feel proud of you, um, you. but I'm also seething with jealousy (laughs) because I want it so bad. It's pretty great. So I actually, I got the Johnson & Johnson, the one-dose vaccine, and when I first got it, my arm was super sore, but then they make you wait for five minutes because just to make sure you don't, nothing happens. Right, like go into anaphylactic shock. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. for 15 minutes, they make you wait, and while I was waiting, the soreness went down. So I was totally fine for the whole rest of the day, and I'm thinking maybe because if you if you guys remember, if you've been listening, I did have COVID back August. Dude, so long ago. No, it feels so long ago. I think it was our werewolf episode. Uh, I think it was too, where you sound a little bit sick. A little bit? I'm so completely nasally. Oh, no, no, no. That'll be a fun one. Well, I'm nasally every day, so (laughs) you sounded fine. So I'm thinking, you know, sweet, maybe won't have any side effects because I've had it. And then my coworker texted me because we got the vaccine through our work and she was like, I don't know about you, but I have a 101 fever. I have body aches. I've got the chills. And I texted her back and I was like, I'm doing great. What are you talking about? I'm, oh, nothing's going to happen to me. But then I remembered that she got hers on Friday at like 8 a.m. Yeah. And I got mine around 1 p.m. Uh-huh. So I was like, shit. I'm not in the clear yet. Yeah, we always record Saturday afternoons mm-hmm. for the, I guess, like the next week. Yeah. Like it, or it'll come out two days later. Yeah. And um, you texted me on Friday night and we're like, um, I probably will be fine to record tomorrow. <laughs> like everything is cool, whatever. But just so you know. Yeah. 
yeah it's like oh you'll be totally fine yeah i was like oh i'm fine yeah and then saturday morning you're like i might be dead now well so i was at home watching movies because i mean that's what you do in a pandemic i mean actually when there's not a pandemic you also do that because movies are life movies are fucking life (laughs) so it's like 11 o'clock at night and it just hits me and i just started to feel off and I was like, something's not right. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just like a little something. So I was like, okay, I'll go to bed early. So I'm laying in bed. I'm watching TV in bed, trying to fall asleep. And then all of a sudden it hits me even harder. Really? And I get the chills really, really, really bad. Oh, I was no. like shaking uncontrollably, wrapped in five blankets. And then my eyes started to get hot. And I don't know, please let us know if I'm the only one. But whenever I'm about to get a fever, yeah, my eyes get hot. Like, yeah. behind my eyes just start to get hot. I don't know how to explain it other than that. Yeah, it's like you feel like there's a pressure. And, like, I don't know. It's yeah, almost it's like, like hot. If like you were, like, a cartoon, hotness. like, steam would be escaping out of your eyeball. Exactly. Uh-huh. And yeah. so that started to happen. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to get a fever. So I just knew I was going to wake up with one. So eventually I fall asleep, but just tossed and turned all night. And when I woke up, I felt like complete shit. Yeah. And I took my temperature. It was 100.5. <laughs> Worst headache of my life. Uh-huh. And that's when I texted you. And I was like, I might be able to record later today. If I, I know. <laughs> I know. I was like, all right, it's going to be a late session. Okay, great. And you're like, I'm going to go to sleep for just a little bit. And then yeah, I didn't hear from you for hours and hours. Yeah, I was, I was like, like, I'm going to sleep okay. this off. I was still very optimistic at that point, though, that I would be able to uh-huh. record that day. And then I slept for, like you said, hours, mm-hmm. woke up at 1 o'clock, still had a headache, and I think I texted him and was like, yeah, it's not happening. Sorry. Yeah. Maybe Sunday. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. So, But don't let that scare you. Everyone's different. I know of another person who's actually a bit older than I am who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and they didn't have any side effects. So who knows? The light at the end of the tunnel is here. And by summer, we'll be back to somewhat normal. And I'm just so, so excited for that. Uh, Dude, that makes one of us. Well, May. I, well, I have gained like 40 fucking pounds over quarantine. <laughs> That's why. Okay. And I am so sorry, but this body right now is not summer ready. I was thinking it was going to be another summer of me sitting in my house, eating chocolate pudding, <laughs> like doing whatever, doing nothing. Just get the vaccine and then you won't eat for like two days. I still don't have an appetite. And here we are. So. Yeah. 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 So. Oh. <laughs> well, we're Okay. We're. We can see the finish line, but uh-huh. we're not there yet. We mm. haven't stepped over mm. it, so you still got some time. Okay, I'll get my jumping jacks on. Yeah, so just do a bunch of jumping jacks. I think that's how you... I don't even know how to lose weight. <laughs> that's how you lose weight. Just, just do, like, jack. 10 jumping jacks a day. Yeah, I think so. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it'll. this will all just be, like, a really bad nightmare we can all look back on and cry about later. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're almost there. Just be patient, people. We're almost there. Nicole. Yes. Quick Q for you. Yes. Um, Quick A for you. Yeah. A my Q so hard. (laughs) Okay. So when we both had the vaccine yeah, and things are like semi kind of open or whatever, Mm -hmm. do you want to go get breakfast with me? Absolutely. In France? Absolutely. Woo! Yes. Cool. Okay. In the catacombs. 
Yes. All right. Let's that's make it a plan. Again. We're going to go get breakfast in the catacombs. <laughs> in the catacombs. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll even record a live episode. A little croissant in a catacomb. <laughs> Let's do it, girl. Bring a bottle of wine down there. Oh, Let's yeah. Just live down there. Oh. Uh, like the movie Us. Mm, oh, that's such a good movie. Oh, my God. I love the movie Us. <laughs> just talking about that, actually. I like it how there's no plot holes in it. That's my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do a quick little recap, shall we? On last week's episode, you know, the one that we thought was going to be the last mm, one, but yeah. then it turns out that it wasn't the last one. It was Jones in Town was that, that was the fourth one, right? Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In our Fast and the Furious sequel series. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Well, on that one, we chatted about how it was the beginning of the end for the kingdom of Jim Jones in Jonestown. Mm hmm. Tim Stone put on his little vendetta hat, and he went to work forming the Concerned Relatives Group, an aptly named group full of concerned relatives, yes. looking to free their loved ones from the cult's Guyanese compound. And then, if you remember, sweet little baby Jimbo was supposed to show up to court, like, a lot of times, yeah. using his summons as sort of a boogeyman to frighten the followers into believing that the government wanted to steal all their babies. And he's like, yeah, I'm just not going to show up to court ever. Yeah, and that's what he did. Yeah, don't don't <laughs> ignore your problems because they get worse. And then mm. what do you have to do? Ritual suicide. Yeah. Yeah, just go to court, guys. To this court, is our Jen. little PSA here. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, what's a man to do when he finds himself between a Tim Stone and a hard place? Well, of course, you write a five-page letter titled Urgent, Urgent, Urgent to President Jimmy Carter, a letter that Jimmy Carter probably never even read and definitely never responded to. Definitely never read. And that brings us to, I said Sweet Baby Jimbo earlier. I love calling him Sweet Baby Jimbo. I'm so sorry. It's the only, I think it's the only name that one should call him. I think so, too. It just, it fits his personality. Sweet like, he's just, Jimbo. like, so sweet and, like, so, just like a little ugly Eskimo baby. Yeah. So that is when our boy, Jim Jones, really lost his shit. He was high off his ass the entire time. (laughs) He had six shades on, like 24-7. Killing it. He had a microphone in one hand and a corona in the other, blasting messages of faith over the loudspeakers, just, again, 24-7. And he was also piloting test runs of flavorade drinking that he called the White Knights. Yeah. Jim had his son, Stephen, pretend to shoot at him through the jungle, and then he pretended that a group of mercenaries were on their way to take out Jim and steal the godchild, John Victor. So that led to him keeping everyone up for two straight days, obviously, and marching everyone through the jungle, obviously, to escape to Cuba, obviously. (laughs) And then he was just like, actually, we're calling this whole thing off, and everyone went back home. Yeah, he was just like, psych. Yeah, it was a pretty sick prank. Yeah. Ashton Kutcher showed up. He yelled, pranked. Everyone thought it punked. (laughs) Pranked. (laughs) Don't you remember that other offshoot show he had called Pranked? (laughs) And then Leo Ryan got involved. In January of 1978, Tim Stone met with nine congressmen, including Leo Ryan, because he had to get the government involved at this point. Yeah. The Guyanese government couldn't make Sweet Jimba show up to court. So what do you do? You bring down the hammer. With Leo Ryan. With Leo Ryan, a real mover and shaker who agreed to take a deeper look into the case. Leo Ryan began investigating, and he decided that he needed to go to Guyana to see for himself. So him and a rather large party of news crew, concerned relatives who were 
relatively concerned. Diplomats and Tim and Grace Stone also went to Guyana to try to get John Victor back and also convince as many of the others as they could to leave. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Almost 3% of the Jonestown population was making their way back to the United States with Congressman Lee Orion until Jimba decided to kill everyone in a group of his personal guards called the Red Brigade, along with Larry Layton, attempted to kill everyone on board the planes and ultimately pumped Leo Ryan full of 20 bullets, killing several others and injuring the majority of the survivors. Which brings us to today's episode, the most infamous moment in Jonestown, which happened at basically the exact same time as this Leo Ryan massacre. Yeah, so when we left off, we left off with the deaths of five people at the Port Kaituma airstrip. Those people being Congressman Leo Ryan, Don Harris of NBC, Greg Robinson, who was a photographer from The Examiner, Bob Brown of NBC, and Patricia Parks, one of the defectors from Jonestown, along with another 11 people wounded. On November 18th, 1978, the People's Temple in the settlement that was known as Jonestown would meet its grisly end. With the 26 people defecting after the visit of Leo Ryan, Jim Jones felt completely betrayed and could see his vision of a perfect socialist society crumbling before his eyes. Even though um, like only about 3%, it wasn't even 3% of the total of Jonestown population was leaving, remember that Jim Jones fucking hates when people leave him. Mm -hmm. Cannot handle it. It's this direct betrayal in his mind. Yeah. And he was just like insane with anger if even one person left. Right. Like that kid from earlier when he was younger, when they were from their play date. Exactly. And he shot exactly at him. the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jones has the Jonestown doctor, Larry Schacht, and the nurses prepare in a large metal tub with the letter C on the side, a concoction of tranquilizers, cyanide, and grape flavored flavor aid. Um, does C stand for crazy delicious? Uh, no, I think the C in this scenario stood for cyanide. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On this day, to make things even more dismal, it was raining super hard, like torrential downpour hard. In the early evening, Jim Jones then called all of the people to the pavilion, and Jim told the people that someone was going to shoot the pilot of Leo's plane. You can actually listen to the death tapes and we'll play you some clips. Um, They're free on Hoopla and also YouTube. And there is some crazy shit in there. Yeah, highly recommend. Recommend. I listened to it, um, not even being hyperbolic, six times yesterday. Really? Yeah, it's only about 45-ish minutes, a little less than that. And it's... It's jarring Mm -hmm. to listen to, so highly recommend if you're into this shit, which I would assume you are if you're on part five of the Jonestown series. (laughs) If you've stuck with us this long, Uh you gotta be into it. Jim told the members of the People's Temple that they were going to commit revolutionary suicide, something that he had been planning for years. He told them, you can go down in history saying you chose your own way to go. And it is your commitment to refuse capitalism and support socialism. But are they really choosing their own way? Absolutely not. Yeah, he did mix up the drink for him. Yeah. After Jim told all of the people this, 
60-year-old Christine Miller stood up and actually tried to argue with Jim, saying that they should instead move to the Soviet Union because Jim was pretty tight with the Soviet embassy. And there were actually talks of an exodus of the whole Jonestown colony to Russia. And actually, this is a clip of Christine trying to reason with Jim, and you get to hear his excuse on why he doesn't want to go to the Soviet Union. You think Russia's going to want... No, I'm not going to... You think Russia's going to want us with all this stigma? We had, we, we had some value, but now we don't have any value. Well, I don't see it like that. I mean, I feel like that as long as his life is hope, that's my faith. Well, tell me everybody dies. Someplace that hope runs out because everybody dies. I haven't seen anybody yet didn't die. And I like to choose my own kind of death for a change. I'm tired of being tormented to hell. That's what I'm tired of. Tired of it. Twelve people's lives in my hands, and I certainly don't want your life in my hand. But I'm going to tell you, Christine, without me, life has no meaning. I'm the best friend you'll ever have. Beep, 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 beep. Let's go to Russia. God, he's such an asshole. I know. I hate his voice so much. I but I think, he, so you hear him say, Christine, without me, life has no meaning. I'm the best friend you'll ever have. Which is just, I don't I don't even know how to react to that. Well, he's a God complex. Yeah. So in his in his mind, the world revolves around Jim Beebity Beep Jones. <laughs> Beebity Beep. Jones had even actually met with the Soviet embassy with a Soviet embassy representative, Fyodor Timofeev, several times. And Timofeev, I think. And Timofeev had even sent the request to allow the temple to move to Russia, to Moscow. But Jim told the people that this was just not possible. When the members of the Red Brigade made their way to the pavilion, Jim announced that Congressman Leo Ryan was officially dead. And that at that point, there was just no going back. Yeah, it's super weird on the tapes. Well, I know you listened to him a hundred times, too. Mm -hmm. On the tapes, you hear someone say, Leo Ryan was murdered. Mm -hmm. And Jim's like, oh, fuck yeah, dude. He doesn't say that, but you know. (laughs) Fuck. Beepity, fuck that. (laughs) Beepity, beep, fuck that. Well, Jim used this because then he then told all of the parents that they better not have any children left alive because... Once there was word of the crash of the plane or the murder of Leo Ryan, I guess in this case, because the plane didn't crash, he told them that they would have people parachute into Jonestown to take their kids away and to raise them to be everything Jim Jones stood against. Basically to raise them into little capitalists. Oh, I went to that camp when I was little. Little capitalism camp? (laughs) Yeah. I got a credit card. Um, They showed us how to... (laughs) buy stocks after hours if you're part of a hedge fund. It was really fun. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. During this time, armed guards surrounded the pavilion. Many members also stood up and praised Jim for his decision, and they showed their support for the community and their support to commit revolutionary suicide. I'm sorry. They're absolutely programmed to believe that whatever Jimba wanted is what they, too, should want. Oh, 100%. Throughout this whole tape, they're clapping yeah, and they're cheering, cheering for him. It, it breaks my heart. Yeah. 
Odell Rhodes, who was a member of the People's Temple, witnessed the beginnings of the mass suicide, but he was actually able to escape. And he said that the first person to drink the poison was a woman named Ruletta Paul, who was in her 20s, and she also had a one-year-old child with her. He said a syringe without a needle on the end was used to squirt the poison into the baby's mouth, and then Ruletta squirted another syringe into her own mouth. They actually made the children drink first, and they gave the parents the option to join the children and do it alongside with them. Jim Jones called it the humane thing to do. Mm -hmm. Jim's reasoning was that the government was going to come in and torture everyone, and then that they were going to take their kids, brainwash them, turn them into capitalist idiots. So that's why the children had to go first. Also, imagine if the kids didn't go first and all the adults were dead and that was just like a jungle full of babies. Oh, my God. With like a vat full of cyanide. Whoa. So you can't not do this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. I mean, or alongside them, at least. A man named Stanley Clayton, who is another member who managed to escape, said that Jones made his way through the crowd, encouraging people to drink the poison. He said that after people started to see the effects of the poison on the first couple of people who had gone, most of them wanted out, and they realized that they did not want to die this way. (laughs) Yeah, dude, no shit. Right. Yeah, this is, there's a big difference between the practice white nights and then the real Mm -hmm. deal. Remember during the practice, like, no one had to see this gruesome dying part. Mm -hmm. It was just a lot of psychological fear of, you're gonna die in like forty five minutes, probably. I'm really bad at counting. Well, so it's a test. The white knights were a complete test to see who was loyal and who would do it. Yeah, and everyone seemed so brave about it. But mm-hmm. then when you actually see people dying in front of you, yeah, things you, get super fucking real. Right, you change your mind then. Yeah, probably. The poisoned flavor aid caused death in children. They say maybe within five minutes of drinking. Even less for babies, but honestly, no one really knows. Yeah. That was just like a guesstimation that I found on the internet. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can kind of take comfort in the fact that they might have died quicker, but still. Well, it's pretty yeah. shitty. For adults, however, it's said that it took anywhere between 20 to 30 minutes to die. So once you drank the poison, you were then escorted away. And Jim told everyone to die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears of agony. I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to ten more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. I just got chills. I want to play another little clip from the death tapes. This is after all of the children had taken the drink. So I just want to warn people because you can hear children crying in the background. And obviously we're not sure if it's because of the poison, but I think we can come to the conclusion that it's probably them dying. Yeah, I think it's it's fair to to it's It's sort of disturbing. So if you want to skip ahead now, now is the time. You'll hear people praise Jim Jones and call him dad. But these are the last recorded words of Jim Jones, and this takes place while the adults are in line waiting for their turn to drink the flavor aid. So just also keep that in mind. 
Where is the vat? The vat, the vat. Where is the vat with the green peas? Go on for onto the fine. Thank you, Dad. The vat with the green pea in, please. Right here, so the adults can begin. Big you don't don't fail to follow my advice. You'll be sorry. You'll be sorry. That we do it and that they do it. Must trust you. You have to step across. We used to think this world, this world's not our home, and it sure isn't. We were saying it sure wasn't. He doesn't want to tell me all he's doing. If they will tell him, assure these children. Some people assure these children of the relaxation of stepping over to the next plane. We've set an example for others. We've set 1,000 people who say we don't like the way the world is. Take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. So those were the last recorded words of Reverend Jim Jones. I hate his stupid fucking Midwestern voice and his dumbass lisp. I know his lisp is pretty bad. I hate it so much. And I think I've listened to it so much that I can picture him like saying these words yeah, in my face, right. like in my brain. I just, I don't know. It makes me so angry. Yeah. And you can hear him. I think... What's really fucked up about that clip is that you can hear him. Say, he says, I think, please uh, reassure the children mm-hmm. that stepping over is the good thing or something like that. And it's like you can hear kids crying in the background. They're, yeah. they're clearly dying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's fucked. Dude. It's bad. Yeah. So what does death by drinking cyanide feel like, may you ask? Yes. What does death by drinking cyanide feel like? I want to I want to know so bad. <laughs> well, it's fucking horrifying. Remember, for adults, it could take up to 30 minutes to die. So, first your entire body starts to convulse. Then you start to foam at the mouth and you start to vomit blood. Then it basically just suffocates you and you pass out and die. Cyanide is also said to taste like bitter almonds. Well, that's absolutely horrific yeah so you're on the ground convulsing foaming at the mouth and suffocating yeah you basically just suffocate and your brain just stops working that's one of the most painful ways to die suffocation well yeah 908 people had to go through that jones called the people's temple in georgetown and told them this code which meant revolutionary suicide he said a lot of people have gone to see Mr. Fraser. I think Mrs. Brownfield has gone to help. So that's the code that means, like, it's on? Mm-hmm. Is Mr. Fraser, this might be a stupid question, is Mr. Fraser, like, the flavoring and then Mrs. Brownfield is the cyanide? <laughs> I took it, like, I took it as Mr. Fraser being God, maybe, oh. and then Mrs. Brownfield being the cyanide. Okay, that's so how I looked at it. That makes sense. Like a lot of people have gone to see God. Gone to see God. I think yeah. suicide has gone to help. Mm-hmm. Or cyanide is cyanide. Going to help. Yeah. Stephen Jones, Jim's son, and his only biological son was in Georgetown at the home owned by the People's Temple at the time of the mass murder. 
Stephen was not on the compound because he was on the Jonestown basketball team who were actually participating in a basketball tournament versus the Guyanese Nationals. In fact, three of Jim's sons were on the basketball team, which ended up saving their lives. So we had Stephen, Tim Jones, and Jim Jones Jr., who were all spared because they were on the basketball team. In the documentary that I watched, um, it's on Amazon. It's called Jonestown Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. Stephen is in in the documentary, and he talks a lot just about his experience and being there. And he said that his father actually had reservations about letting them go, the basketball team. He didn't want them to leave because all of this Leo Ryan was coming and he mm-hmm. didn't want anyone away from Jonestown. But it was Marcelin who put her foot down and she made it her cause to force Jim to mm-hmm. let them leave, which sort of makes me think that maybe she knew something was going to happen, you know, like it was planned or I don't know, but she just didn't want Stephen to be there. I know that much. Yeah. And from what I understand, she did this a lot. Like, she would try to get her children out of mm-hmm. the compound as much as possible. And Jim Jimble was always like, no, 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 they need to stay here yeah. just in case. I need someone to shoot at me from the jungle or we have to kill ourselves. <laughs> but she was constantly just trying to get the children out. Right. Stephen said that his mother had tears in her eyes when he left. And he said, looking back on that now... He doesn't think that she thought that they would ever see each other again. So I'm not sure if maybe Marceline knew exactly what was going to go down, but I think she knew that Jim, that the visit of this congressman was going to push him over the edge. Yeah, I think so, especially if she was crying when Mm -hmm. she was forcing them to leave. Yeah. Stephen heard the message, the special code message that Jim had sent to the house in Georgetown, and he knew exactly what it meant. But he also knew that there was nothing he could do for the people in Jonestown. What was done was done. From what I saw, Stephen had this way, just like Marceline had, of being able to talk Jimba off a cliff. Mm -hmm. So he would take him out of like his suicide moods, like his mass suicide moods. But obviously he couldn't this time. And I don't know. I did see one article that was sort of like blaming him for it, but I don't feel like that's fair. I feel like you no. you know you can't blame someone for someone else's actions. Right. I mean, at that point I think Jim had it in his head. I don't think there was any anyone was going to stop him to be honest with you. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And part of me wonders um if Stephen had been there if he had been able to talk him out. And then also mm-hmm. I wonder if this had been on like the precipice of happening before and Stephen and Marceline were like, "No, no, no, let's go get ice cream instead of killing everyone." <laughs> ice cream. Like, I wonder how many times that this almost happened. I think with the killing of Leo Ryan, though, that was like, there was just no going back. And everyone knew it. Everyone was like, there's not, this is just how it's going to be. I agree. Sherwin Harris, who is another man who is profiled in this documentary, he was a member of the Concerned Relatives. And he actually went along to Guyana with Leo Ryan's crew. He, however, did not get to go into Jonestown. He stayed in Georgetown because that's where his daughter Leanne was staying. Sherwin was married to a woman named Linda Harris. Well, her name used to be Linda, but Jim told her that he knew a woman named Linda and that he didn't like her. So he made her change her name to Sharon. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. 
Sharon was a People's Temple member and a high-ranking one at that. She was actually permanently stationed at the People's Temple home in Georgetown. And she lived here with her daughter Leanne and her two other children from another relationship. Krista, who was 11, and Martin, who was 10. Sherwin was at the house in Georgetown having dinner with his daughter Leanne, who he had not seen for quite some time, when Sharon received the message from Jim. Sharon called Leanne over and told her that she needed to end dinner with her father because they needed to kill themselves. Leanne was only 21 years old at the time. Dude. Yeah. So Leanne goes back to her father. She stops dinner short. And Sherwin leaves with the promise that he will be back tomorrow and that they will spend the day together. A promise that he would not be able to keep. This is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Sharon was a very devoted member to the People's Temple. So when the message came... Sharon, or Linda, took her children, locked them in a room, and with a kitchen knife, Sharon slit the throats of her children, Krista and Martin. Then, Leanne slit Sharon's throat and then her own. I also heard and read that they possibly slit each other's throats, so I'm not really sure. I guess we can't really know. I think it's very hard to slit your own throat. It's like your body doesn't Doesn't want you you, to kill yourself. Yeah. So in total, 908 people, including Jones, died in Jonestown that day. Around 300, I've read 304, but also 270 of those 908 people that died that day were babies and children under the age of 18. (laughs) Yeah, basically a third of this commune were children. Children. People were either injected or they drank the poison. It took an estimated four hours until everyone at Jonestown was dead. Out of all of the people there, only seven were able to escape that day. Imagine being one of these last people and you have just watched everyone in your life die over the course of four hours. Mm -hmm. And you pick up that fucking cup. And you drink it. Yeah. It's so messed up. It hurts me. But they thought that they were doing something good, though. Mm-hmm. That's that's the more fucked up part, I think, is that they were brainwashed into thinking what they were doing was the right thing. Right. They're starting a revolution. Yeah. There is some speculation that some people were injected against their will because around 70 people were found with bent needles in their arms. But it's not certain if this was to inject them with the poison or to inject them with additional sedatives to help them die peacefully. But I'm going to say if the needles were found aggressively bent, I'm going to probably guess that they were forced. Yeah, it seems likely that some people were forced or I don't know, maybe like they were injected and then they collapsed onto the needles which bent them or something and like some horrific Mm. like I don't know, but I'm yeah. just going to, I'm going to be team people were forced to die. Oh, yes. Yeah. Odell Rhodes, one of the survivors, said that he did witness some people resisting. He said that he saw a girl spitting out the flavor aid over and over and over again. And another survivor, Stanley Clayton, said that he actually witnessed people being injected against their will. So. Right. I, I think it would be very hard to convince 
over 900 people to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence that anyone was forced to drink at gunpoint, but like I said, we don't we don't know. Two people and one monkey actually died from gunshot wounds. Mr. Muggs. Mr. Muggs. Annie Moore, a nurse at the age of 24, and Jim Jones at the age of 47, died from gunshot wounds. Annie from a self-inflicted wound, and Jim Jones, it's thought that she was the one who shot him. <laughs> Put his fucking head on a pillow. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mr. Muggs was shot in the head, which is just like... Come on. Even Mr. Muggs, like, let the poor monkey go. Dude, let the monkey... You're in the you're, fucking jungle. Exactly. But I think that's just also a testament to Jim and his controlling behavior. Mr. Muggs just... He just wanted to be happy, man. Seriously. And he just couldn't let... He couldn't even let the freaking monkey go. They're in the South American rainforest with a fucking monkey. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, we'll kill it. Yep. Let it go! Exactly. Ugh. Exactly. So frustrating. Stephen Jones says he never grieved his father's death. He is actually disgusted that his father chose to be shot in the head and not go out the same way as everyone else. He had to have someone shoot him, and he thinks it's because he just couldn't bear to go out the way everyone else did. And Stephen doesn't believe that his father was actually capable of shooting himself, which is why he had to have Annie do it. So he has no problem telling all these other people to die and giving them a very painful death, basically. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to him, he pretty much takes like a coward's way out, if yeah. you will. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. Annie Moore, the nurse who it's thought shot Jim, was also thought to be the last to die. And hers was from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. But before she did die, she wrote this letter. It says... Jim Jones showed us all this, that we could live together with our differences, that we are all the same human beings. Luckily, we are more fortunate than the starving babies of Ethiopia, than the starving babies of the United States. What a beautiful place this was. The children loved the jungle, learned about animals and plants. There were no cars to run over them, no child molesters to molest them, nobody to hurt them. They were the freest, most intelligent children I had ever known. Seniors had dignity. They had whatever they wanted, a plot of land for a garden. Seniors were treated with respect, something they never had in the United States. A rare few were sick, and when they were, they were given the best medical care. And then underneath the note, in a different colored... I think the note goes on a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, but underneath the note, in a different colored ink... She added the line, We died because you would not let us live in peace. Signed, Annie Moore. Can we just, for one second, dissect some of this? Please do. All right, so she's saying that they're more fortunate than starving babies. In Ethiopia. I'm going to say everyone that's not a starving baby is more fortunate than a starving baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty low bar there, Annie. Mm -hmm. Pretty low bar. And also, there were no cars to run them over. They were the freest, most intelligent children, so we killed them. Yeah, because you wouldn't let us live in peace. That's the lie that they believed. It's because so... everyone, the us versus them uh-huh. mentality. It's so ass backwards. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. Over and over, us versus them. 
it was it was their fault. It was the government's fault. It mm-hmm. wasn't Jim Jones's fault. Mm-hmm. It was their fault. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. According to the survivors hiding in the jungle, the first and the last shot happened hours between each other. So Jim, the shooting of Jim, and then Annie. So she was the last to go, it's thought, and it was basically her job just to make sure everything was wrapped up. But it happened in a long period of time. So who Mm -hmm. knows what she did. Maybe she walked around, you know, no one really knows. Imagine that. Imagine just three hours of walking around with all these dead Mm -hmm. people. And then still at the end, Mm -hmm. killing yourself. Yeah. After seeing it. I I don't know how, I mean, you have to be a certain type of brainwash to see Mm -hmm. all that and then actually go through with it yourself. Yeah. You know? Right. Tim Carter, Mike Carter, and Mike Prokes escaped death because they were sent away from Jonestown with a suitcase full of 550,000 U.S. dollars and 130,000 Guyanese dollars, two passports, and a letter to deliver to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown. The letter was addressed to Timofeyev, you know, Jim Jones's Mm -hmm. Russian pal, and it read, Dear Comrade Timofeyev, the following is a letter of instructions regarding all of our assets that we want to leave to the Communist Party of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Enclosed in this letter are letters which instruct the banks to send cashier's checks to you. I am doing this on behalf of People's Temple because we as communists want our money to be of benefit for help to oppressed people all over the world or in any way that your decision-making body sees fit. In the letters were accounts with balances totaling $7.3 million to be transferred to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. When Tim Carter got these instructions, he knew what was happening, and he knew that his wife and his son were there, and he wanted to get them out. But when he gets to his family and he finds them, they had already drank the poison and it was too late and they were, they were dying and he, they basically died in front of him. Wow. There was nothing he could do. They were given this task before the suicides began and then once they realized what was happening, Tim's family, they died. They, there was really nothing left for them to do so they just ditched the money and they were later apprehended at Port Katuma. That is so ridiculous. I I don't feel like Jim Jones had a firm grasp on what the USSR was actually like. Mm-hmm. And he truly thought that his money would go right. to help people mm-hmm. when it absolutely would not have. A man named Odell Rhodes, who we mentioned earlier, escaped and his version of escaping is kind of amazing so he just walked up to an armed guard and just told them that he didn't want to die and then they let him go and they told him to have a nice life wow and i think i also heard a story that he got away originally from the group because Mm -hmm. he lied and he said he was going to go grab a stethoscope oh and then when he left Mm -hmm. he just went to the armed guards and I don't know I don't know maybe he knew them maybe he was tight with them and he was like let me go I just want to go and they were like okay cool go because I don't think everyone could have just done that no no I don't 
I don't think so. So, yeah, I don't know what was so special with him. Maybe maybe they were his friends and they were just like, yeah, man, just leave. Yeah, or maybe he was just so like, I'm leaving. Right. And they didn't fucking care. And it was just one guy, so they were like, okay. Yeah. The lawyer, Mark Lane, talked his way past the armed guards and then he fled into the jungle like a coward. And he said while walking through the jungle to Port Ketuma that he heard the two gunshots and he confirmed that they were hours apart. Mm. Stanley Clayton, who we talked about earlier too, was another lucky one who was able to escape into the jungle. Grover Davis, a 79-year-old man who was hearing impaired, missed the initial announcement. And when he realized what was happening... He just laid down in a ditch and pretended to be dead. That's legendary. I know, right? It's such a good idea, too. I think if I were in Jonestown, that would probably Mm -hmm. be my strategy. Yeah. Just lay down and pretend I was dead. I totally took it. um, No, I am dead. Mm -mm, I'm dead. Exactly. Grover said that he did not witness anyone being forced. From what he saw, everyone was doing it willingly, so... Well, you were in a ditch, Grover. Yeah, I mean, different perspectives doesn't mean that's not what happened. Yeah, I mean, they could have just walked up to people and injected them in their backs or necks or... Exactly. Whatever. And my favorite story is that of 76-year-old Hyacinth Thrash, who actually heard what was happening, hid under her bed to escape the murder, and then fell asleep under the bed and then when she woke up she got out and just saw everyone and everything that had happened (laughs) just dead bodies everywhere yeah that's i can't even i can't even imagine i'm like totally for the first time in my life speechless yeah i know i think it's a i'm surprised more people didn't try to get away i want i wonder though yeah you i mean that's the thing is i i wish we don't be a fly on the wall yeah okay so i also watched a documentary on net no i think amazon i'm gonna say it was amazon was it it wasn't the paradise lost was it no i did watch that one and it's very fun mm-hmm. well you know as fun as something as like fun this as can, be. can be <laughs> i throw the word fun around a lot when... yeah we don't actually mean fun no <laughs> but you, you guys you know yeah highly recommend i guess yeah. is what i'll say um no this one was really good it talked about there was a lot of survivors that they were interviewing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it offhand, but we'll put it in the sources. Yeah. At the at the end, yeah. Yeah. Two of the people that they talked to were Brenda and Tracy Parks. Mm-hmm. They escaped from the airship or the airstrip. Oh, so they were at the Port Katuma. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So when the shooting went down, they were like, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. And they just booked it towards the jungle nice. with three other people. Nice. So basically what happened is they're sitting on the plane Mm -hmm. and their brother Dale is sitting in front of them and Larry Layton points his gun like an inch away from their brother's face. Mm -hmm. The gun jams. Whoa. And these girls are like, we're leaving. Yeah. They left their brother. They left their family. Like survival instinct just took over, which I can't blame them, dude. Yeah, same. I can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, a man standing in front of you with a gun and they knew Run. that Larry Layton was up to no good when he got on that plane, too. Oh, absolutely. So they they just fucking run. And they're running into the woods or into the jungle. And they wait a little bit. Mm-hmm. And no one's really coming. So then they just keep walking. And eventually three other people do catch up with them. Mm-hmm. 
No one wants to split up, which is a really great idea. Yeah. But they're walking for three days. And yeah, they're tracking like back and forth. They're doing like zigzag maneuvers, like going like like in just crazy directions to try to throw off what they think are Jim Jones' private army Mm -hmm. trying to come and kill them, but are actually search helicopters. Oh, no. Yeah. So they're in the jungle for three days. Um they're delirious. They haven't eaten. They haven't yeah. had any water to drink. They think people are killing them. It's just a real shit show. They're all covered in bug bites and like mm-hmm. their whole body is swollen. Mm-hmm. And the one girl, I think it was Brenda, she said that they fall asleep and she wakes up to what she heard like was like branches snapping. Mm-hmm. And she thought it was an armed guard or something. Yeah, the Red Brigade. Yeah, so she wakes her sister up, and her sister's like, no, dude, that's a jungle cat. (gasps) And she gets up, and she starts screaming, and then they hear the cat run away. Oh, my God. Yeah, so basically, they almost get killed by Jim Jones, and then they almost get killed by a fucking jungle jungle cat. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And then they make their... bad day. (laughs) This is three days later. bad three days. No shit. So then they make their way to... They hear water. They make their way over to a river. Mm -hmm. And they see a man on a canoe, and they hit the ground. Mm -hmm. Because they don't know who this dude is. Right. And he calls out, are you Brenda? We're looking for Brenda, Tracy, and Chris. Oh, shit. So they don't know what to do. Yeah. But they're starving. Yeah. So they figure, whatever, man, jig is up. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. And Brenda stands up and she's like, yeah, it's it's me. And he says, I'm with the Guyanese government. We've come to save you. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Those words are probably just like. <laughs> yeah. So they get into this canoe and then they go back to the airstrip because it's pretty much. Yeah. Guyana at this point has no infrastructure, basically. Yeah. So they go back to the airstrip and. The dead bodies are still there. The plane's still there. They go in. They see their brother is dead. Their dad is there, Gerald. He's alive. And they meet up with him, and then they just get to go home. Wow. Yeah. It was really harrowing, and I felt so bad for these women. That's terrible. I also – so we talked about Vern Gosney Mm -hmm. in the last episode. He was the one who handed the note to who he thought was the congressman. He's one of the people that they profile in the Paradise Lost documentary as well. Yeah. And so he has kind of a similar story where he ran into the jungle too Mm -hmm. and the shots started firing and he hid in the jungle. Sort of like the same way. I think he actually was shot and then they came and they found him and he just laid in the jungle for hours. But what was really sad about his story is that he had a son. Oh, and he left his son in Jonestown because he thought that his son living in Jonestown, he would just have a better life. Who was – oh, with Grace Stone, too. That was the oh, yeah. same thing with mm-hmm. John Victor. Yeah. And we questioned it when she left him, too. And then he left his son, and obviously his son his son died in Jonestown. Right. And it just, like, in the documentary, you can just tell it kills him. I can't, I can't imagine the survivor's guilt yeah. that any of these people feel. Yeah. It's pretty sad. Marceline actually resisted and would not drink the poison until every child was dead. Her body was found amongst the others. The last to die were the high-ranking officials at Jonestown and their children. So there were 13 of them, including the godchild, John Victor Stone, whose 
custody battle was really the whole thing that put this all into motion. These 13 people were found dead in Jim Jones's cabin. Some had drank the flavor aid, some had injected it, and some actually did both. In total, the people on the airstrip and the people of Jonestown, the total number of the people who died were 918. Stephen Jones, who today is happily married with three daughters, spent a lot of time on the phone with the People's Temple members in San Francisco, and he eventually ended up talking them out of suicide. Yeah. So once, I'm sure they got the code too, because Jim sent it to Georgetown, he sent it to San Francisco. Yeah. Stephen, it was too late for the people of Jonestown, it was too late for Sharon and her kids, but he got on that phone Mm -hmm. and he called San Francisco and he talked them out of suicide. So yeah. he is really is like the true hero of this story, I think. Absolutely. In my, yeah, in my my opinion. Absolutely. There were over a thousand people still yeah. in San Francisco from yeah. what I saw. So can you imagine? That's what Jim Jones wanted. He yeah, wanted yeah. mass suicide yeah. of across borders exactly. in his name. Yep. And Stephen fucking saved the day, dude. He did. Yeah. Many people refer to the deaths at Jonestown, and I actually kind of teared up writing this, and I'm kind of tearing up right now, but many people refer to the deaths at Jonestown as a mass suicide, which is it's a complete falsehood. The deaths at Jonestown were a mass murder. Absolutely. And it happened because Jim didn't want the outside world to know what was really going on, because he didn't want to ruin his facade of a perfect society. It makes me so sick. It's disgusting. Stephen said that if he were there, he might have taken the drink with everyone, just because he wouldn't want the others to look down on him. He says that he could have totally been influenced just by the fact that he was afraid of what people might have thought of him if he tried to not take it. I would imagine that a lot of the people that did drink it that was sort of the reason yeah like peer pressure yeah like the white knights you know you were made an example of if you didn't comply and you didn't drink his flavoring mixture yeah so i'm sure dude a lot of people were like everyone else is doing it i also Mm -hmm. have to do it it's like those studies that they do where they they plant someone and then they it's what what is it called it's like human like like brain studies to see if you'll go along with like everyone else. Like there was oh, one yeah. study where there was this woman in a, there were people in a waiting room and a, a beep would go off and everyone would stand up mm-hmm. and then it, it would go off again and then everyone would sit down and then they'd bring people in who weren't, didn't know anything about this. Yeah. And they'd be sitting in this room and the beep would go off. Everyone would stand up. The beep would go off again. Everyone would stand down. And these people weren't told to do this. Uh-huh. Nobody told these people to do this, but they just saw every other person doing it in the room. And every single one of those people were just started doing it with everyone else. Yeah. Because that's what everyone else was doing. Yeah. Herd mentality. You don't want to be... Exactly. You don't want to be singled out for not doing it. Exactly. Although I would like to think that neither of us would stand up. We'd probably be like, uh, okay, not... No. Yeah. I think there was, there were, there was one guy who was just like, nah, this is weird. Yeah. I would like to think that too, but I don't... You like to think things about yourself, uh-huh. but you don't actually really know until you're in that situation. But I feel like I'd text you like, okay, I'm in this waiting room. I'm like, <laughs> exactly. I don't know what the fuck's going on That would on be right the now. first thing is we would text <laughs> each other and be like, there's some weird shit happening in this waiting room. <laughs> in the documentary, 
the Paradise Lost documentary, Stephen says something that I thought was really beautiful, and I think that we can all learn from it. So I wanted to repeat it. He says, ask yourself, what would somebody have to tell you? Or what would somebody have to do to you to get you to do something that you couldn't possibly believe you were capable of? And examine that. Learn from it. Don't judge it. Don't stand separate from it. Be willing to stand in the shoes of the people you are judging. And I hope that 900 plus people who that day died and the way they died might offer us something so that their lives might not be in vain. Wow. So I just thought that was, I don't know, that that quote made me tear too because I think there's definitely 100% something to learn from this entire situation. Absolutely. There's a lot of things to learn from this situation. Mm-hmm. But like you said, even if you'd like to think that, you know, you wouldn't do something or you would do something, Mm -hmm. you never know. You never know. You never know what you're capable of and what you're capable of putting yourself and others through Mm -hmm. until you're put under pressure in some sort of way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I mean, I could go on forever and ever about cults and how... And how easy it is to actually fall into a cult. Yeah, and the then, psychological. Yeah, and then people aspects. on the outside will always say, you know, how stupid could you be? Yeah. Like, that was obviously a cult. Yeah. But you don't know until, until it's too late. Yeah. Or you never know. Yeah, that's 100% true. By happenstance, Guyanese troops were already at the airfield at Port Kaituma, where Leo Ryan and his group had been attacked. They were there guarding an old military plane that had crashed. When they saw what was going down, they didn't intervene at all because they were afraid of starting some sort of international conflict. I think that's a theme that we're going to see a lot with the Guyanese government. Yeah. They just didn't want to interfere at all. Yeah. Just didn't want to take responsibility for anything. Well, also, since you brought it up, the U.S. government a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's... I I get, dude. I'm going to get so much shit for this. But we live in a country where there are a lot of freedoms awarded to people. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to say it. Sometimes you need to question what people are doing with those freedoms. Yeah. Yes. Freedom from religion is a slippery ass slope, dude, into murder cults, into human trafficking, Mm -hmm. into marrying child brides, all in the name of religion. Right. And I just think that there needs to, honestly, I don't know if it's regulation or what, but there needs to be less hands-off attitude from the U.S. government. There definitely needs to be some more attention filtered to that aspect of freedom. Look at Nexium. Look at Scientology. Yeah. Even, like, I'll stop now because I just could go on forever and ever about Mm -hmm. this, but... Yeah, there's there's a lot of not interfering that happens, yep. and then a lot of people die from it. Mm-hmm. So with the Guyanese army already there to witness this whole shit show, they radioed in what they saw, and they suggested that maybe someone needs to go check on Jonestown, like, whenever they have oh, a yeah. free moment. Maybe? Okay. Yeah, like, when you're done with lunch, <laughs> schedule it for a couple days from now so it's in your books. You're mm. going to get out to Jonestown. Mm. Yeah. And remember that Jonestown was in the middle of the jungle, hours and hours away from the closest town, with no easy route to reach them or the compound. 
I wonder if that was their plan all along or if it just sort of worked out that way. Because if you think, if their compound was easily accessible, this whole thing could have been could have been prevented. Yeah. It reminds me of Waco. Yeah. It's like the exact opposite of Waco. Exactly. Like Waco was in like basically a mini mall. Yeah. And then Jonestown was in the middle of the jungle in another country. Yeah. And the government was like, oh, we'll get to that on Thursday. Right. Because they couldn't. It took them forever to get there. So. Exactly. And it was the next morning when the Guyanese military reached Jonestown with every intention of storming the compound and liberating all of the people there. Oh, a little late, Guyanese military. Yeah, when they arrived, they were met with a scene very different than what they were expecting. Instead of a military-style armed cult members, they found a lot of lifeless bodies and only a few survivors, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. like that sleepy old lady. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there were, like, a lot of bodies. A lot. 908 bodies rapidly putrefying in the hot and humid Guyanese climate. And something needed to be done with them basically right now. If anyone has any morbid curiosity like you you know that I do, you can YouTube the aerial footage of the scene. And it's pretty terrifying. It's just dead bodies laying all over the place. It's very sad. It's very sad, and I think that there is that iconic photo. Mm-hmm. It's a, just a still from it. Yeah, just the aerial still of just everyone just laying on the ground, <sighs> Yeah, dead. The first people on the scene waded through empty plastic cups, torn open grape flavor aid packets, and syringes, some with needles and some without. They littered the area where the bodies were found and, and were all over the pavilion. There was one medical doctor brought into Jonestown from the Guyanese government. His name is Dr. C. Leslie Mutu, which I could just, I know this is a very serious thing we're talking about, (laughs) but I couldn't stop picturing the Pokemon Mewtwo Mewtwo. (laughs) in a lab coat. Well, thank you, because I am now picturing that, and I guarantee you everyone else listening to this is is as well, so. (laughs) It lightens the mood a little, don't you think? It does, thank you for that visual. So Dr. Mewtwo, who was then the chief medical examiner of Guyana, was brought in to examine the bodies and determine an overall cause of death. Mewtwo, or Mewtwo, determined initially that overwhelmingly the victims had died of cyanide poisoning, as we said earlier. Mm-hmm. However, Mewtwo also determined that at least 187 of the victims died from injections of cyanide. Wow. These injections were delivered in parts of the body that could not have been easily reached by the victims themselves. So think like your back or the back of your neck or something like that. So that leads everyone, including me, to believe that this was done forcibly. Oh, yeah. After 32 hours of nonstop work in the jungle conditions, Mutu is quoted as saying, we gave up. This was nonstop. This man didn't sleep. His team didn't sleep for 32 hours. Mutu and their team had examined as many bodies as they could with their limited resources. So there could have been more bodies that had been injected, but there was just too many to go through all of them. Yeah. It was was a small team. Um, I didn't get an exact number, but I know it was like him and then like only a couple assistances. It's shocking to me that they counted 
187. I wonder mm-hmm. how many bodies they had actually gone through because that makes me believe that maybe more people were injected than actually drank willingly themselves. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're never going to know. Yeah. And you'll you'll find out the, this whole body situation is a, it's a fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. Like on top of just being almost a thousand dead people. Yeah. What happens is. Well, we said it was hard to get there if you're living. So uh-huh. how are you going to transport all these bodies out that are dead? So it's it's disturbing, but we'll uh-huh. get to it. Okay, okay. There had been a promise of additional forensic assistance coming from America, but they conveniently didn't arrive. <laughs> it was then that Mutu made the determination that this was in fact a murder and not a mass suicide. Yes. They had seen enough of the injection sites and they were confident that that this would just be the case across the board, basically. Guyanese authorities decided after personally reviewing over 200 bodies within these 32 hours that Mutu needed some help. So they waived the requirements of an autopsy for cases of unnatural death for the remaining victims. One caveat was the body of Annie Moore, who was Caroline Layton's sister. Mm, The nurse, yeah. Yeah, who died of the gunshot wound at the age of 24. Yeah. Well, based on the way that the bullet entered her body, it was determined that this was not self-inflicted, despite the suicide note found near her body. Really? Yeah, this is a real huge point of contention for me personally, and I'm sure you and just a lot of people. Yeah. As you said earlier, that she killed herself. The gunshots were mm-hmm. hours and hours apart. But for some reason, this medical examiner was saying something else. And I I wonder why. It didn't... I tried to read her autopsy, but uh-huh. it was very medically. Yeah. And I wasn't really getting it. So I couldn't figure out, like, if it was the angle or what it was. But they determined that it wasn't self-inflicted. I wonder if... Not to say anything bad about a Guyanese medical examiner, but I wonder if they had an American medical examiner take a look at it or if that was just like the end-all be-all, this is what it was, you know? I don't know. I don't truly know. And then part of me also wonders, was Annie alone? Was she Mm -hmm. with another person? And they were kind of like tasked to wrap things up and, you know, one person took out Annie and then went and injected themselves or something. That's, I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, because it's so weird why why the only two people that died of the gunshot were Jim and Annie. Right. So it would be weird that she wouldn't – it wouldn't be self-inflicted. Yeah. Because then I, who why – why wouldn't that person just turn around and do the same to themselves? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know you read a little bit of her suicide note earlier, mm-hmm. but I did find one part that I wanted to read, if that's cool. Go for it. So this sounds very, very forced to me. She says, "When I, where I can begin, Jonestown, which was all caps, mm-hmm. the most peaceful, loving community that ever existed. Jim Jones, again, all caps, the one who made this paradise possible. Much to the contrary of the lies stated about Jim Jones being a power-hungry, sadistic, mean person who thought he was God of all things. And then she goes on to talk about how much he just loved animals and how he would never push a puppy down a trap door. You <laughs> bastard. It was my last chance, You Nicole. son of a bitch. Yeah. But it just seems really, to me, I'm reading it sort of like a Jim Jones. Was standing over her. 
telling yeah. her. Honestly, probably. It seems like it. Yeah. And then part of me wonders, did he write the full note? And then she just wrote that last bit in oh. a different pen. Yeah, we'd have to get some uh, handwriting experts on that. Well, I don't think we're going to, <laughs> but, you know, it would be great. And speaking of notes, they also found a note from Marceline in her bedroom. The type note was dated from November 18th of 1978. It was signed by Marceline, and it was witnessed by Maria Katsaris. And it reads, I, Marceline Jones, leave all bank assets in my name to the Communist Party of the USSR. The above bank accounts are located in the Bank of Nova Scotia in Nassau, Bahamas. Please be sure that these assets do get to the USSR. I especially requested that none of these are allowed to get into the hands of my adopted daughter, Suzanne Jones Cartmel. Whoa, Cartmel. For anyone who finds this letter, please honor this request as it is most important to myself and my husband, James W. Jones. Cartmel, is that Patty Cartmel? Did they adopt Patty Cartmel's? I think so. And she didn't want this... She didn't I want her to have anything? She she didn't want her to have any of this. <laughs> Poor girl. Yeah. And this one to me also reads like Jim wrote it. Yeah. Especially because it was signed as witness from Maria. Maria Katsaris, yeah. Who is plain. the most insane fucking <laughs> person. Plain to the ground, Maria <laughs> The United States government tried to have the bodies interred at the site offering to pay the Guyanese government for burial costs, no matter the price. Basically, blank check, mm-hmm. bury the bodies at the camp. We don't want any, like, don't yeah. want anything to do with this. Yeah. The Guyanese government was just so super sick of Jim Jones and the whole thing that they flat out refused and basically said, come get these bodies now or else we're going to have a big problem. Okay, but, like, also, the Guyanese government... I know that they kind of took a step back from everything. Uh-huh. But by doing that, they sort of enabled him. Oh, for sure. And it's all all of this is partially their fault as well. If they yeah. had just investigated him, actually cared a little bit, <laughs> made maybe him this, go to court. Yeah, maybe yeah. this could have all been prevented. But they were just like, nope, wash my hands clean. Mm-hmm. And look what happened. And now they're like, yeah, we still want to wash our hands clean of all of these dead bodies. Yeah. What That's I was what I was thinking though is maybe they didn't want to kind of like be like have it all fall on them almost like this is a United States problem come get your fucking bodies right but they were also using the oh for sure civilians of the United States as like a shield against what was yeah. it who was going to invade them Brazil was it Brazil oh shit some country no, no, that, no, no. They were, uh, that they were they were like yeah. Venezuela oh Venezuela. And they were like, yeah, Jim Jones and a whole bunch of Americans mm-hmm. come on our land because of Venezuela invades us. Yeah. Now we're going to have trouble. And then Jim Jones turned out to be terrible. Even worse than Venezuela. They regretted everything. Yeah, exactly. There was also a lot of pushback from the victims' families in the United States. They wanted their family members back. They wanted to give them proper burials. Mm-hmm. The United States military was the only organization able to handle mass casualty recovery because, you know, casually large body counts due to war. It's kind of right up in the government's wheelhouse. Yeah. The Dover Air Force Base in Delaware was assigned to receive all of the dead bodies. Here is something that 
I think is super weird that I want to talk about for a moment. Okay. Initially, the U.S. government reported only finding 405 bodies. What? Yeah. So then they launched an ex- what they called an extensive five-day search into the jungle surrounding Jonestown. And they said that they didn't find any more bodies of the People's oh. Temple dead or alive. What? Where the hell did the bodies go? Are <gasps> Zombies? <gasps> Zombies. Zombies. Then suddenly, on the morning of November 24th, they found 509 more bodies. Jeez. Yeah. An official report claims that the bodies had been, quote, stacked and widely dispersed. Um. Despite the obvious aerial photographs not showing any stacked up bodies. Yeah. So I don't really understand. That's so odd. That. It makes me feel like maybe they just didn't want the pain of bringing back that many bodies. Oh. So they were like, let's just pretend that we only saw this many. (laughs) But then that was a really big lie, and there were a lot of people there that could corroborate this, like what was going on. Right. I don't know. Maybe that's just me and my distrust of the government. Uh, But they just happened to find 500 bodies five days later. Yeah, how are you going to pretend to lose 500 bodies? That's not like one or two. Five, that's like... Over half of the amount of bodies that are there. You know, like when you lose your keys. Okay. (laughs) And then you find them and they were right in front of you the whole time. It's kind of like that? It's almost identical to that. But 500 bodies worth? But 509 human bodies. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) It makes sense to me. Oh, yeah. Complete sense to me, too. U.S. military helicopters loaded down with waterproof canvas body bags and metal transport containers to serve as interim coffins flew to the remote South American jungle to bring back almost 1,000 corpses. Helicopter of 1,000 corpses. All of, the, all of the workers tasked with recovering the bodies reported a lot of trauma from the event. There was very little understanding of PTSD at the time, even though it seems... I mean, 1978 was not that long ago. Yeah, but mental health just recently became a thing. That's true. They used to call depression, like, the blues and (laughs) give you a lollipop to fix it. Yeah. So they used the term shell shock to describe the way the workers felt upon return. But this wasn't like war that they were used to. This -hmm. was different. These were civilians, mostly elderly and mostly children that were found dead. And it was haunting, and it stuck with them yeah. forever. I would think it would be all the bodies of the children that would do it. It's, I mean, it's terrible. Many of these workers were kept up, unable to sleep from day in and day out of putting the bodies of the dead into their canvas bags. Jeez. One was quoted as saying, quote, I cannot get the small children out of my mind. <sighs> Military personnel, including doctors, pathologists, typists, and soldiers, went to Guyana to make sure that there was a true account of what they had found. The first aircraft returned to Dover on November 23, 1978. It carried the remains of only 40 U.S. civilians. Wow. The U.S. government had grossly underestimated the effort it would take to recover the bodies and the emotional impact it would take on those who had to deal with the cleanup. The bodies were taken to Hangar 1301 to be stored after identification and the occasional autopsy. They would autopsy like two out of the 40, just for fun. Oh, in the U.S.? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. More workers had to be recruited to work in the makeshift mortuary, 
not just in processing the bodies, but also as administration to contact families and also record information. It took a literal army to make sense of the situation, all while the government rushed the workers to do what should have taken almost a month to do. They rushed them to finish it in just a week's time. Was it because of the decomposition of the bodies or I don't know. I wanted to get I think they just wanted to be out of Guyana. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's why they only found 400 bodies. At the beginning, so they're like, this is going to take way too long. Maybe, yeah. A small town of workers had begun to spring up at this military base, with tents to house the additional workers, food service tents, administration staff, and an entire hangar was taken up by typists hired to complete the paperwork on typewriters. Because remember, there's no computers, there's no internet. Oh, yeah. All of this shit is typed or handwritten. Dude, I forgot about that. It's mm-hmm. 1978. Shit. The grisly scene at Jonestown was not taken lightly by those who had to work there. The conditions at Jonestown were made worse by erratic and severe rainstorms and the staggering humidity. Bodies bloated and changed color. They became infested with insects and torn apart by animals. Should I have put maybe a warning in front of that? Sorry, everyone. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, though, that the where they were, I mean... A lot of the bodies were in the sun. Yeah. The warm climate and then just being surrounded by close to a thousand dead bodies. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. One worker wrote, it is difficult to convey to someone what a week in a tropical environment can do to a human body. (sighs) The overpowering and unforgettable odor of just one body is beyond imagination. Yeah. And then imagine 908. (laughs) Wow. I just got goosebumps, dude. This is this I was crying when I was writing this. Yeah. It was very dramatic. I'm like sitting at my computer like (laughs) (laughs) ugly crying. (laughs) Yeah, it was ridiculous. The workers put three to four babies in each body bag and put multiple bags in these makeshift metal shipping containers that again served as coffins. Mm -hmm. Some people were angry that they had to recover the bodies at all wishing that they could just leave the, quote, fanatics to rot in the jungle like they had wanted all along. But ultimately, the human condition overcame them all. These weren't fanatics. I mean, sure, some probably were. Mm -hmm. But mostly, these were just people, like someone's sister, someone's son, just caught up in a fantasy that went too far. Yeah, that's so insensitive for a person to say. Who cares if they are a fanatic or if they were a fanatic? If it were your loved one, I'm sure you would want them home and you would want to be able to give them a proper burial. It's like they think that they deserve less because they were in a cult and they were a fanatic. It's it's ridiculous to me. It is They're ridiculous. They're still people. Yeah, I also was reading, I, I read a lot about how people just didn't want, like the people that were sent there didn't want to do their fucking job. Yeah. Yeah, whether it was a lot of them were racist against it and like, I don't want to touch like all these dead people of color. I don't want to do any of this. Like, who cares? They're not white people. Yeah. Or they're just in a third world country. Who cares? Yeah. There was a lot of that. And I wasn't going to bring it up, but obviously I did. It just made me feel really sad. And I I didn't really want to. Yeah, people suck. I think we know that. But because of the unknown contaminants and the horrific odors and bacteria, The waterproof body bags were sprayed upon arrival with a chemical solution, and those handling them had to wear hazmat suits. The coffins were also disinfected and then sent right back to Guyana to pick up more of the dead, over and over until the job was done. 
The last shipment of bodies arrived at the Dover Airport on November 27, 1978. By April of 1979, just over 300 bodies of the Jonestown victims had been claimed by family members. Wow. So just a third. Wow. But over 500 remained unclaimed at the Dover Air Force Base, and over 200 were so decomposed that they were past the point of identification. Wow. I don't think that they kept any of these bodies in, like, cold storage, though. They're just in a hangar. So... Right? They just kept them bagged up? I don't know. Oh. I was looking for pictures of the hangar. Yeah. And I, I didn't see any. Like, I couldn't find any. Like, yeah. I mean, it sounds like if they didn't want to even bring the bodies back mm-hmm. in the first place and they were just, people weren't really doing their job, doesn't sound like they would keep them, Yeah, they would go through all the trouble to keep them, you know, cold and. Right. Ugh, man, that's, ugh. Many of the victims' families couldn't afford the military transportation fee, which costs almost $500, which is about $2,000 in today's dollars. So you had to pay. Once the body got to America, you had to pay the military. To take it out of... Yeah, because it cost them money to bring the body back, and you had to pay for that. Or sometimes a family could not afford to bring a loved one home for a private burial, so they just left them. (sighs) There was also a problem that a lot of cemeteries were just refusing to take the remains. Many of the hometowns of these victims didn't want to become pilgrimage sites for those that still follow Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Eventually, a cemetery in Oakland, California, which is just across the bay from San Francisco, where the former site of the People's Temple was located, Mm -hmm. they agreed to bury the remains of hundreds of the unclaimed bodies of Jonestown. So they had a special cemetery for the people of Jonestown because they weren't allowed to be in other cemeteries. It was a mass grave. They dumped them all into one giant hole and then they <sighs> covered it with a bulldozer. Wow. People are so terrible. It's it's crazy. Yeah. In August of 2014, 2014, I'm just going to say that again. The cremated remains of nine people from Jonestown were found in a former funeral home in Dover never claimed by their family. In September of 2014, four of these remains had been returned to the next of kin, but this left five still unclaimed. Those unclaimed five were publicly identified on the news in hopes that family would claim their remains, but they were never taken. Mm. All five have now been buried at the Jonestown Memorial and Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California, along with the remains of others that were never claimed or unable to be identified. Part of me thinks that the the ones who were never claimed might have, maybe they started, when they joined the People's Temple, maybe they just started a new identity because they wanted a new life. That could be. You know? Yeah. Or a lot of people they took from the streets, so. Yeah, a lot of people were like unwanted youth or homeless people or drug addicts. I like to think of that instead of the fact that their families just like disowned them and just stopped giving mm. a shit so yeah or who's to say that whole families you know your whole family basically didn't yeah. die in Jonestown exactly. so there's no one to claim you wow Larry Layton the one who was shooting inside the airplanes at the Port yeah, Kaitima the airstrip joined the group of defectors yeah he was put on trial but he was initially found not guilty of attempted murder in a Guyanese court he claimed that he had been brainwashed by Jim Jones 
Larry Layton was deported back to the United States, and he was arrested by the U.S. Marshal Service upon arrival in San Francisco. Once again, the Guyanese government washing their hands clean of a situation instead of doing what they should do. Mm-hmm. Like we said before, it was cool for them to allow all these people to come in, but then when shit starts to go down, they don't want anything to do with it. Right. Layton could not be tried in the United States for attempted murders of Gosney, Bagby, Dale Parks, and the Cessna pilot because it happened on Guyanese soil. Really? Yep. Wow. Instead, he was tried under a federal statute against assassinating members of Congress and internationally protected people. So that's the only way that they got him. So yeah. if he were to just kill normal people, it would be fine. Yeah, if it was in Guyana. Wow. He was convicted of conspiracy and of aiding and abetting the murder of Leo Ryan and the attempted murder of Richard Dwyer, who, if you remember, was the ambassador to Guyana. Oh, okay. He was the only person to have had been ever held criminally responsible for what went down in Jonestown. Larry Layton was paroled in 2002, and I cannot find what he is doing now. But at least he has to live with himself forever. Yeah, I read he spent 18 years in jail, and I bet he changed his name after he got out. To, like, Jerry Clayton. (laughs) In 2011, a memorial was erected at the Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, with all 918 victims' names included on it. I read a very heartbreaking article about how hard the families fought for that memorial for 32 years. 32 years. Yeah, and then it was finally approved. The article had interviews from families of the victims and survivors. One woman, 1L Smart, lost four children, her mother, and her uncle in Jonestown. She said, quote, My children are no longer unidentified and unclaimed. To them, I say, I am sorry it has taken so long. It should have happened a long time ago. The main thing keeping the memorial from being built was the infighting between the victims' families and bureaucrats, over whether or not to include Jim Jones's name on the memorial. Ultimately, his name was included, which I personally think was the right thing to do. Because they just didn't want it to be like another shrine type of thing for the people who still. I think they the thought he called? didn't deserve it. Oh. Because it was a memorial to the people that died at Jonestown. And he was basically the one that pulled the trigger. The general consensus at the end was that it didn't, it just didn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. The memorial was about the people of the People's Temple. And if putting Jim Jones's name on it got it put up, then fine. Mm -hmm. Technically, he was also a victim of Jonestown. Yeah, I think he was a victim. He he was a victim of himself. But Mm -hmm. I think you're right. He was there. He was a member. He was the core of Jonestown. And I think it's absolutely important to mention him. Jim Jones Jr. and Stephen Jones were there for the unveiling. Stephen Jones said that he hoped that the monument would make it easier for the survivors and the surviving family members and bring them some peace. He also seems to distance himself a lot from Jonestown. He's in a lot of documentaries, though. He is. Two separate that I can think of, and I didn't even watch the one that you're talking about. That's true. (laughs) So at least three. That's true. I think he's, he's more so about just trying to learn from it you know yeah i think so too i also found this really really great interview with grace stone and jim jones jr grace stone said that the media was super super nice 
to the defectors and the survivors, which I was wondering about. That's surprising to me. Yeah. She said that everyone was just super, like, gentle. They didn't push anything. Mm -hmm. They were really cool about it. And when she would tell reporters who were, like, outside her door or whatever that she didn't want to talk about it, they would just leave. Wow. I know. That doesn't happen. (laughs) Like, a different time. Yeah. She was asked to go on the Phil Donahue show, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it was like Oprah before Oprah was Oprah. Oh. He was like the talk show guy. Wow, okay. So she went on the Phil Donahue show to tell her story, and she said that no one asked her anything outrageous or rude. She did say that she just explained what happened and that the audience was just really quiet and very emotional Mm -hmm. and really supportive. She said the only awful people in the press were the foreign press, especially the French Really? (laughs) Yeah, she said that they wanted to know about Jim Jones and, like, his sexual habits. Of course they did. Of course the French did. (laughs) The fucking French. Yeah, they wanted to know how many people he slept with, and they were totally insistent that all the women in the compound were Jim Jones's wives. Oh. And they were just really pushy about it. Like, how many times did you have sex with him, Grace? Like, really fucking terrible. Turn it into, like, a sister wives situation? Maybe. Wow. Jim Jones Jr. is a doctor now, and he said that for a long time he went by James Jones until one day when a new nameplate was installed on his office that said Jim Jones, MD, and then like all the other super impressive doctor titles that you have. (laughs) And he said that he sat in his office and he had a panic attack seeing the name Jim Jones. But ultimately, he decided, along with his brother Stephen, that the People's Temple was so much more than Jim Jones. Mm -hmm. It was a group of people that at the heart of things just really wanted to change the world. A group of people that fed the hungry, clothed the poor, gave back to the community, and changed people's perspectives. Jim Jones Jr. also said that he was really, really proud to have been the first black baby adopted by a white family in Indiana. Ultimately, Jim Jones was a lot of things. For a long time, he rode the line between good and bad. Just like Jonestown was a place of peace and adventure for so many individuals for so many years, and then all of a sudden, it wasn't. Unfortunately, the legacy that Jim Jones wanted to leave, the statement he wanted to make, was all for nothing. The 918 people whose lives were wasted were just turned into an annoying misquoted phrase. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. I'd also like to just ask you to think before you say that phrase Mm -hmm. to all of our listeners. Don't drink the Kool-Aid or drinking the Kool-Aid. Before doing this topic, I said it. Yeah. But after doing this topic and this research and just learning about the heartbreak and the deaths of all of the innocent people, especially the babies, (sighs) and then the brainwashing and the manipulation and the abuse from Jim Jones... It's not something that I personally will continue to say, and I don't think it's something that you should continue to say. I agree. I think we can be better as humans, and I don't think we should make light of the fact that this happened. And it's completely insensitive because there are survivors still, and there are still relatives of people who lost their lives in such a horrible way. So just think before you say that stupid phrase. I agree with you. I had never said it because I was one of those assholes that pushed her glasses up and said, mm, actually, it's, it's flavoring, which it was, like, let's be honest. Yeah. But also, 
yeah dude you're making a good point it's like it's very insensitive i mean we can't tell anyone what to do obviously but definitely think before you say it because it's just one stupid phrase it's not gonna affect you in your life if you stop saying it just stop saying it yeah every time you say it think about the 918 people who were murdered and there it is, people. Our five-parter concluded for you. It's the final Jones Wow. Our yeah. longest parter. Our longest series. The longest ever. Wow. Yes. If you want to know more, um, we actually will be talking about all the conspiracy theories of Jim Jones on our after show on an exclusive patreon only after show so check that out if you want to learn more and if you want to see our faces of disgust while we talk about jimba <laughs> jones that will also be coming out a few days after when we normally release it we normally release wednesdays after our episode mm-hmm. but like i said before i was extremely ill from the vaccine so this is all kind of a little last minute so we don't have time to do the after show but we will be filming it next weekend and it will still be coming out to you guys so just think of it as like an unofficial part six what's the part six for fast and the furious is it the fast and the furious it's fast and furious six so jim and jones six J- jones, jones and town six <laughs> yeah jones and town six <clears throat> only if you are a part of our patreon that's right. If you would like to join our Patreon and unlock tons of exclusive content and then also just support our podcast, either go to the link in our social media bios or you can go to patreon.com slash quite unusual pod. And if you are a listener that has a super special, cool, spooky story yourself, you can send us your listener lore to quite unusual pod at gmail.com. We actually have an episode coming up for you guys yeah um both of our brains are made of liquid now (laughs) we have been living in jonestown yeah and so we are going to next week instead of putting out our regular research content we are going to read an episode of purely listener mail purely listener mail we are also on all of the social medias facebook instagram twitter all under quite unusual pods so if you want more content Hit us up on there. Or slippery slide and do our DMs. <laughs> there it is. Come say hi there to us. it is. And instead of asking for people to leave reviews, do us a favor. If you love our podcast, which we assume you do, if you're still here for part five of Jonestown, please, please share our podcast with someone you think will like it. Yes, please. Word of mouth is the absolute best way for us to find new listeners and grow our little coven so if you love us let somebody else know and one more thing to plug if you have anything fun that you want to send us a handwritten letter um a sticker a bronze dick anything (laughs) at all you can send that to our p.o box p.o box 1212 in des plaines illinois 60017 And remember to celebrate the strange. And keep it unusual. Bye. And this is the part of the show 
where we give praise to the all-knowing leaders, supporters of the podcast, and benevolent beings. To Adam R., who is said to remember all of their previous lives, having retained all of the knowledge of their past reincarnations being the most intelligent being in the universe but is still having trouble remembering their PIN number. Oh, yes, he forgot that one, of course. Oh, yes, yes. To Evan Kay, who just got back from his vacation in the Hollow Earth. Are they wearing masks there still? Hmm. Hmm. Say hi to Bigfoot for me. We'll have to ask. Jess H., the only person to win a pie-eating contest against the all-consuming black hole of the underworld. It's pie day. Celebrate with a slice. It is pie day today. It is, but it won't be when this comes out. It'll be the day after pie day. I hope you ate some pie. To Kaylee O., who invented a phone that can communicate with the dead. But, like, they don't get really great reception in the afterlife, so what's the point? Can you hear me now, Kaylee O.? Lauren R., the third child in the story of Hansel and Gretel that no one really talks about because she left early. More into savory over sweets. Yeah, doesn't want a cavity, that Lauren. Mm, don't blame her. To Mike B., haunted doll restorer. Thinks that scrubbing blood off Chucky's face and sewing the rips in his tiny little jumper are simply child's play. Wanna play, Mike B.? Samantha P. misread Red Rum as re-drum and decided to once again pick up those drumsticks and never look back. How inspirational. To Savannah L., who stumbled across her doppelganger, but instead of dying, convinced them to fail in for her at work every now and then. Hmm, like the movie Us Again. Spencer W., a concierge at the Black Lodge. They don't do turndown service, but they do hold a great cocktail hour in the Red Room. Oh, I might have to go there and speak a little backwards. To Tim M., once a member of the Men in Black, but he left because black suits really weren't his style. More of a florals for spring guy. Mmm, revolutionary. Thank you to all of our coven members on Patreon. Without you... We are nothing. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. 